Hi, I'm Mackenzie Fagan, filling in for Ashley Ford, and this is Woman 2 BK. Coming up, a phone call with the commissioner of the newly launched mayor's office to end domestic and gender-based violence. So as we really think about sexual assault, we know the trauma, humiliation, and often uh, survivors are, are encouraged to be silent. So one, we would encourage reporting, this is a crime. And then the New York City Housing Authority, underperforming and under siege. We'll hear about it and get a preview of next week's Brick Be Heard Town Hall, NYCHA, The Cost of Living. The mayor talked about building stables for horses. And here's this crisis in public housing, but yet you're ready to set up a housing system and put it in place for horses, but not your constituents. It's misplaced priorities. Miss, absolutely. Understatement. Mm. Thanks for joining us. Coming up in a moment, a mini panel before the big Be Heard Town Hall on NYCHA. But first. That was from a rally Tuesday at City Hall for sexual violence survivors, inspired by the recent allegations against Supreme Court nominee Brett Kavanaugh. Despite the show of support, the sad reality is most people face significant obstacles in coming forward with allegations of sexual assault, violence, and abuse. Here to talk to us about resources available to survivors, we're joined on the phone by Cecile Noel, the commissioner of the newly launched Mayor's Office to End Domestic and Gender-Based Violence. Thanks for coming on to 112BK. It's a pleasure to talk with you, Mackenzie. So tell me a little bit about your role and about this newly created office. Well, my role, as you said, I am the commissioner of this office, and this office has always existed as the Mayor's Office to Combat Domestic Violence. And so we have, since 2001, been working uh, um, really on the issues of intimate partner violence and those intersections across the spectrum. But what we realized and what the de Blasio administration has realized is that the, the issue of gender-based violence is broader than just intimate partner violence. And so on September 7th of 2018, we announced that our office has expanded its, 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 its mission to now serve not only intimate partner violent survivors, but survivors of um, sexual assault, stalking, family violence, and trafficking. That sounds incredibly needed. And I wanted to ask you about the recent firestorm around the Supreme Court nominee. And there's been a lot of attention brought to the fact that survivors of sexual abuse and violence often don't report. Can you tell me a little bit about the obstacles that face these survivors? Well, first of all, I would like to first say that that for survivors listening, for anyone who knows a survivor listening, that New York City and the de Blasio administration wholly support survivors in every way and has made huge investments across the spectrum to be able to serve survivors appropriately. So as we really think about sexual assault, we know the trauma, humiliation, and often uh, survivors are, are encouraged to be silent. So one, we would encourage reporting, this is a crime, and they should report that. And two, then really think about the services that you need. And we stand ready to support survivors as they seek 
services. And that's really why we're here, to be able to connect them to community-based providers as well as city-based resources that they can access in any way possible. They should understand that New York City has services and we're here to support survivors in any way that we can. And often reporting these crimes is incredibly difficult, um, especially for undocumented immigrants. So I want to ask you a little bit about what your office is doing to support those individuals in particular. Okay, so we understand the trauma and now also the, the major challenges that undocumented individuals might feel in reporting. Let's be clear, if it's a crime, they should report the crime without question, and there's no issue of them being documented or not in terms of this city's embrace of immigrants and wanting the affirmative reporting when they are victims of crime. Two, our services are free to everyone, regardless of your immigration status, language that you speak, or gender experience or orientation. So that's important to recognize, that, that we're here to provide these services and that, that undocumented individuals may be able to access immigration remedies that they now do not know about. We do U and T visas, which are special visa applications that are available to victims of trafficking or domestic violence. And so, so we can, in fact, bring some of those immigration remedies to bear in specific cases. But we would want those individuals to come forward and talk with us and also just access the counseling support for all of the trauma that they've experienced through either our community-based programs or through the city's family justice centers. Which, which are locations that we oversee. I, I want to ask a little bit about the support network that you were talking about. This is a difficult week for survivors of sexual assault. Uh, we have the hearings coming up on Thursday with Kavanaugh and Blasey Ford. For anyone who is feeling triggered or re-traumatized by this, what are some of the resources that your office can offer them? So let's go down the list. So one, we have a domestic violence hotline, which is one 800 621 4673 that they can call and be counseled and, and, and connected to services citywide. We also have a website, NYC Hope. And let's be clear, it's listing intimate partner violence resources, sexual assault resources as well. And so they can access resources there and they, they can also come into one of our family justice centers. So we have family justice centers are located in, in each borough, and they provide comprehensive services on site. So they can get counseling and support and case management, advocacy, mental health services if they need that, as well as civil legal services if they want to pursue that as well. So it is very much a multi-service center that, that can service survivors of sexual assault. Thank you so much. These are tremendous resources for members of the New York City and Brooklyn communities. Um, Cecile Noel, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, thank you, Mackenzie. Coming up, our conversation about the state of affairs at NYCHA. The New York City Housing Authority, or NYCHA, has been in the news a lot over the past couple years, but for all the wrong reasons. A thousand plus kids with lead exposure, mold, broken boilers, no heat, orgies. The governor declared a state of emergency and NYCHA's chair was pushed out after it was demonstrated that lead paint tests hadn't been conducted, even though the authority had said they were. 
Some of this will be coming to a head on Wednesday when a federal judge continues hearings on a potential settlement that could see $2.2 billion for capital improvements over the next four or five years. But NYCHA residents are pushing back, saying that NYCHA should not be in charge of the spending. Also, Brick will be hosting a Be Heard Town Hall on the subject next Wednesday here at Brick House. As a preview, we thought we'd have a discussion about these issues on 112BK. Joining us for this, we have Charlene Nimmons, CEO of Public Housing Communities, Inc. and resident of Wyckoff Gardens. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you. We also have Vic Bach, Senior Housing Policy Analyst with the Community Services Society. Thank Hi. you so much for coming on. And we also have Brick TV Managing Editor and host of the upcoming town hall, Brian Bynes. Thanks Hi for Brian. having us. Hello. So I'm curious, this sounds terrible that the public housing conditions are deplorable. How bad are they really? Charlene? So it's really bad. It's not something that's new. And what really concerns the residents and myself is that there's no real action happening to resolve the issue. Even the $2.2 billion is not enough, right? When we know that there's $30 billion, I believe, was the last number. And so I just think that more needs to be done. Does the $2.2 billion settlement almost seem insulting, uh, given that the estimate came in at, I believe it was $32 billion needed to bring things up to code. Is that right? It is insulting. And, and tell me about this lead paint debacle. Maybe, maybe we can go to you with this. Was this surprising to you that, that the Housing Authority had been lying about conducting lead it paint was, analysis? It was appalling to find those kinds of lapses in the operation side of, of NYCHA. And it was equally appalling to find out about the number of heating breakdowns that had occurred over a very bad winter. And it all, what it all seems to me to spell out is that NYCHA's in trouble, not only with uh, its capital backlog, but also with the way it's going about its property management practices. And those two issues get combined because I think as NYCHA gets starved for funding, property management gets demoralized and it gets worse and worse. I don't know if that's your experience, Jolene. I agree. It's, you know, it's not something that's new and that's what, you know, everybody else is shocked mm. that it's happening, but the residents are not shocked because we've been living through mm -hmm. it for so many years. It's not the first time that our elected officials have heard from us. We go to hearings all the time. Everybody is going to these hearings constantly. I mean, if you look at the transcripts over the years on how many complaints have gone in about these issues, it's not, it's not shocking. It's just, it's shameful to even listen to the elected officials or people within HUD uh, almost make it seem as if, oh, wow, oh, is this really happening? They knew it all along. And if it wasn't for the media really putting an eye on it, we would not be here. We would still be going through the same channels that we've been going through. It gets, it gets very easily dismissed as a kind of typical landlord-tenant you know, mm -hmm. dispute. But uh, we were able to put numbers on it in, in our reports by looking at deficiencies in the Housing and Vacancy Survey. And what you see since 2000, 18 years ago, is NYCHA conditions getting increasingly worse and worse and worse while low-income tenants in other kinds of housing in the city were in much better shape. And Brian, you've been covering this story for a while now as a member of the media. Why do you think that we're hearing so much about it at this point in time? 
I think we're hearing about it because there are people who are endeavoring to center the voices of folks who have a lived experience of being in these communities. And Ms. Nimmons and Mr. Bach have forgotten more about public housing than a lot of these so-called experts even know now. And uh, I know this sort of enemy of the people thing is a narrative that's really played out because it has been a lot of people who've made it their work to make sure that those voices continue to come out and we're just doing our small part in that to make sure those voices are brought to the front at our town hall next Wednesday. I think what is really concerning too is that there is this spotlight on the negative things that are happening in public housing and I'm concerned that if we only focus on the negative aspect, we lose sight of the value that public housing has to this to this state. We are one of the largest housing stocks, right, in this country. And to really put such a negative spin on the, the unwillingness to invest, but yet you say, it's almost double talk. You talk about preserving housing and creating affordable housing, but you're not investing in the stock that you already have. And that is for low to very low income individuals. So I think that is really important that they stop the game. It's a game and it's gotta stop. That's a very important point because uh, we really have two housing plans in the city. We have the mayor's affordable housing plan, which is for the private sector. And then we have the NYCHA next generation plan and there's a disproportionate amount of capital going to the affordable housing plan and much less to NYCHA preservation. I think the firewall between those two plans needs to be taken down and that NYCHA needs to be included in the overall mayor's approach to housing. Uh, otherwise, those two plans are gonna compete for resources. And resources are it, limited. Why isn't it being included? Is that politics? Well, I, I wasn't in the smoke-filled rooms where those <laughs> decisions <laughs> were made, but there wasn't uh, clearly a separation. Uh, the mayor's housing plan was launched shortly after he was elected, and n a year later, NYCHA's plan was generated. The two were kept separate, and I think it was because the city wanted certain resources to go to private development mm -hmm. and, uh, and to preserve some of the private stock and they assumed that NYCHA was a different kind of problem, but it isn't. It should be preserved as much as any other affordable housing in the city. Can I just Maybe pull on a so. string of something you said a second ago about the bad news leading that NYCHA and NYCHA residents more specifically are stigmatized. The bad news travels very fast, and the reason that we are able to, like from the city's standpoint, split those things is because public housing does get stigmatized. And if they don't have the political will to make sure that they look at this holistically, then they can continue to divide the haves from the have nots right. in a sense. And I guess that's why we're endeavoring to put on our town hall, NYCHA, the cost of living next Wednesday, because we do wanna bring forward those voices to underscore right. the great things that are happening and just the brain power within NYCHA that's communities right where solutions are present there. We yeah. just have a stage here and we're gonna yeah. amplify those voices because right. the solution is already here. It's right. here. Public housing was stigmatized even before the recent spate of news. 
as you, as you know. Uh, public housing was always looked down upon. Some people think of it as a place where only welfare-assisted families live, and of course that's a mistake. A majority of NYCHA households are working households. And we have HUD Secretary Ben Carson, who once said, don't make public housing too comfy. Do you feel like that sort of attitude is, is part of the problem that we're seeing here? I think it has is this stigma and is this notion that the people who live in public housing want a handout. And I remember we got to talk about it on another media outlet a few years back. And we want to make it clear that people who live in public housing have the same um, desires that anyone else has. They want a, a, a peaceful home, neighborhood, a place where you can raise your family, a good schools in the neighborhood. You want your children to grow up and be productive members of society. So the notion that we don't want the best for ourselves and our family is just a myth. And um, we continually, if you look at the HUD regulations, and that I, I go back to that constantly because there is an opportunity for us to make sure that we uh, enhance the quality of life, even when we're in a deficit. And one of those HUD regulations is Section 3. And a lot of people are not aware, but that is for training, mm -hmm. jobs, and contracts. You can live in the housing authority and own your own business and contract with the housing authority up to a million dollars. And this has been something since 1968. So why are we not utilizing those programs? Why are we not utilizing the opportunities that are available? Um, and so that's what public housing does, public housing communities. We really push forward to make sure that whatever resources are there, we want to make sure that is available to the community. I want to talk a little bit about uh, this hearing in federal court that's happening on Wednesday. Vic, maybe you can tell us a little bit about that. And this here says that um, the suit alleges many things, including that uh, in 2016, there was more than $150 million uh, in construction contracts awarded, but only 0.04% of that went to Section 3 businesses, as you were just saying. So Vic, tell us a little bit more about this suit and what we can expect to come of it. Well, the, the suit was brought by the Department of Justice, and uh, NYCHA and the city and uh, the department have signed a consent decree, which remains to be approved by the judge, Judge William Pauley, and uh, at which point a federal monitor will be appointed or put forward. The hearings being held tomorrow are for the judge to hear public comments on the situation and so on. I view the, uh, the coming of the federal monitor as an opportunity, an opportunity to make changes that have long been needed in the way the authority operates, an opportunity to really find a, 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 a voice as to where the new capital will be allocated, which, which residents will uh, bear the benefits, how it should be appropriated, and so on. Unfortunately, there's not enough capital, and we need more, and there are other ways to try to get it. But uh, I, think, I think this is an opportunity for change, and I think positive change. That's my mindset. And, and is this federal monitor going to have enough oversight, in your opinion, Charlene? You know, they haven't made it clear to us mm -hmm. what that oversight is going to be. Are they coming in? Are they going to, you know, change the staff? Are they going to? They're not really talking to us about what that monitor is going to look like. And our suggestion to whoever is selected 
you really need to listen to the residents because the residents are in sure. the trench. We know what's going on. And you can't operate in isolation. Mm -hmm. um, you have to use those HUD regs. I keep going back to that because that is our protection. And even against HUD and whoever, those are our protections that are there. And so whoever that monitor is needs to read those regs. Absolutely. Right. And the federal monitor has wide powers, change labor agreements that NYCHA has mm. with the unions and to change the way in which the authority operates to change its organization. Uh, it's a rather wide set of powers that the monitor has and uh, we don't know what, what he or she is going right. to do with those powers, but uh, that remains to be seen. The first thing that has to be done is put together a plan. There's also been a steady drumbeat of voices that I've been hearing that says, okay, a monitor, but to your point, we already have the regulations. Why do we need a monitor to follow the rules that are already outlined? The city Absolutely. can solve this, but they push it up to the governor. The governor can solve this. He wants to fight with the mayor and say, well, Ben Carson is buying a new table and not sending us money. So it's almost a little like three card Monty with who's going to be responsible for this. When, well, like you well, said, you're in the trenches and the solutions are here. So That's the point. Well, I'm, I'm clear. not sure they are. I'm not really? sure they are. One of the things that the monitor has to do hmm. uh, is to see that the regulations are followed. HUD, HUD doesn't do a good job. They have fine regulations, <laughs> but they don't do a good job of enforcing them, as as uh, Charlene knows. Yeah. So that's one of the things. But well, a I lot went of to other things. a forum that the what Scott Stringer, our comptroller, was mm -hmm. up in Harlem talking about lead last week, and there was a lawyer who was talking about all of the regulations that we have in the Department of Buildings here and Housing Preservation and Development, just about lead abatement and the number of violations versus the numbers of complaints and permits, and there's no enforcement on the city level, mm -hmm. let alone in the state, and now we want to add another federal level. That seems it, like a whole layer cake, but everybody's hungry. It just goes right back to what, this is not new. And when we look at it and we you know, try to put this, like as if it's a new spin, these elected officials mm. moved from different positions. Some of them were city council, and then they moved to Senate. They moved to assembly. This is a political game, and everybody is just shuffling the cards back and forth and, and, and pointing to others to say it's your fault. I think that it's important for people to understand that you have to stop the games. You need to really enforce that's why, because it, it leads right back to enforcement, no matter who you put in that seat. And that's why when they talked about Shola, I said, it doesn't matter who you put in the seat. If she is not the one, she's not the one. But whoever sits in that seat needs to be responsible and do their homework and read those HUD regulations and apply them. And NYCHA is the biggest landlord in New York City, yes. one in 14 New Yorkers, I believe. One in 14 rentals, right. Rentals, and I'm curious about, you know, the scope of this problem is overwhelming. I'm wondering about what you think the solutions are. You've mentioned, you know, listening to the, to the tenants. They need to just do the work, mm. just do the work. We started out with a surplus years ago of, of money, and it went to the city because they were in debt or, right? 
when we are having this issue, the city has a surplus. They don't invest it into our homes. The mayor talked about building stables for horses, right? When he first got in, he's talking about building stables. And here's this crisis in public housing, but yet you're ready to set up a housing system and put it in place for horses, but not your constituents. It's misplaced priorities. Misplaced. Absolutely. Understatement. Mm. And, and the we other, are. The, the other thing that needs to be done, uh, Charlene talked about political gamesmanship. The mayor and the governor have to get their heads together and decide that this is a state and a city problem mm -hmm. and put together the equivalent of a Marshall Plan for NYCHA. Absolutely. Uh, and uh, that they haven't is really tragic. And we are almost out of time, so very quickly I just wanted to go to you, Brian. And yeah. can you tell us a little bit about the town hall where we can be hearing more about Well, that? this was a great curtain raiser. Thank you for having us. but. These fine folks will not be able to uh, be in attendance that night, so we invited them here to share their thoughts. But we do have uh, City Council Member Alika Ampre Samuel, who is the chair of the NYCHA committee, and as well as the former chair of the committee, Richie Torres, who now is the chair for oversight and investigation. So there'll be some accountability in the room, although we haven't secured a butt from NYCHA to get in the seat. But we are really focused on centering the voices of folks with lived experience, wherever they are, if they've gone through uh, NYCHA, if they're currently living in NYCHA, there's a lot of phenomenal alum of NYCHA who are going to be in the room as well. But it really is gathering all of that collective thought and experience and bringing that right to the front and letting them speak and not politicians recite. And real quick, right when going. and where? Here at the Brick House. 647 Fulton Street, Wednesday, October the 3rd. Uh, there's an RSVP that you can do on Eventbrite. But if you come at 6.30, we'll probably let you in. Great. No, you'll definitely <laughs> have a spot October 3rd here at Brick House. Terrific. Well, thank you so much, Brian Vines, Charlene Nimmons, and Vic Bach. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now some news in collaboration with Brooklyner. Yesterday, we told you about a listening session in the borough for legal recreational weed in the state, which is being contemplated by Governor Cuomo. Thank you, Cynthia Nixon. But what we didn't mention is that Brooklyn is slated to get its first medicinal marijuana dispensary soon, and it will be right down the street on Flatbush between Dean and Bergen. The company, called Sativa Medical, is building out the space now and said it's due to be completed by the end of the year. But if you want in, you got to get a medical card first. Sorry, no pot puns today. A pet project by local council member Justin Brannon might be getting some legs. The representative is going to present a bill this fall that would require pet shops to only sell dogs and cats from shelters and not from puppy and kitty mills, where he says animals are kept in inhumane conditions. He felt Albany was moving too slowly on its own version of a bill, so the longtime animal rights activist slash politician is trying to get it done locally. Right now, California is the only state in the country to have such a statewide law. Oh, California, you're the envy of us all. And speaking of envy, an op-ed in Bloomberg by Justin Fox claims that every American city wants to be Brooklyn. And then it asks, is that so bad? No, we say. But where does he get his information? Because I know some folks in Seattle who are quite happy with Seattle being Seattle. 
He's inspired by and responding to an article in New York Magazine last month called The Unbearable Sameness of Cities, discussing the same kind of amenities and architecture of a Brooklyn archetype that are cropping up all over the country. Fox thinks this is okay, as long as what's being emulated is something positive or worthwhile. Other cities want better coffee, better food, better beer, and if it happens to be served by men with beards and flannel shirts, so be it. It's an improvement, he says, on other recent city revivals, and we should embrace it. But does the author? Well, apparently Fox lives in Manhattan. For more on these and other stories, check out Brooklyner at BKLYNER.com. And that's the show for today. Join me again tomorrow when I'll be speaking with two filmmakers about their new documentary, 306 Hollywood, and a play about Alzheimer's at Billy Holiday Theater. Hope to see you then. Woman 2 BK is hosted by Ashley Ford, except when she's off getting married. Congratulations, Ashley. So for the next couple of weeks, it will be hosted by me, Mackenzie Fagan. It is written and produced by Ross Tuttle, also produced by Fred Brown, Shireen Barhi, Isabella Cantara, Ariana Rosas, Naeem Van, Kritzi Roberts, and Emily Bogosian. It is recorded by Clinton Filson Jr., Eric Hagaseg, and Antonio M. Rosario. And it is edited by Mira Al-Rahim and executive produced by Aziz Aisham, Jonathan Leaf, and Sasha Mathias. <laughs>